Lord God, we gather in the confident trust and joy of the safety that we have in you, that you have set our feet on a rock, that you will not allow us to be overwhelmed and overcome. We will triumph. We have an anchor in the Holy of Holies. We have a great high priest and mediator. We have your many great promises. We have the confidence that what you have begun, you will complete. And so even while we live in an uncertain world, in strange days and times, Lord, we know that none of this is outside of your plan, your notice, your control, that you mean good for us in and through these things. As we gather now, we pray that you would allow our hearts to focus on the matter at hand, that you would turn our thoughts from the concerns of this world and even of our lives, and that we would become who you would have us to be, your bride, your church, your wife, as, as you sanctify your bride, that, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might behold wondrous, glorious truth in your word, and that by seeing your glory, we might be changed from one image of glory, one degree of glory to another. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Welcome. Welcome everyone here. Welcome everyone in the other rooms. Welcome everyone joining online. Just want to make one or two brief announcements. You should find a copy of this month's Messenger on your seat. We also emailed that out on Friday with the seating arrangements, and we'd encourage you to read that. I have an article about our mask policy here I'd encourage you to read. Um, we are having a joint ABF today in place of our normal adult Bible fellowships in which we will be going over some of what I write in my article and mostly an update on plans for fall ministries and Bible studies and Sunday schools and small groups and children's church and all that. So we would really encourage you to come and participate in that. There will also be a time for any questions you may have as we are living in strange days trying as best we can to figure out how to faithfully move forward. Uh, I'd like to invite us now to return to the worship of the Lord in song. Please open your Bible, if you have one, to Ephesians chapter 5. You'll find the um, notes this morning's message in your bulletin or in the email we sent out to you if you're watching from home. And this morning we continue our study of Ephesians and in particularly our study of Paul's household code. If you remember the first three chapters of Ephesians are primarily theological instruction made up of indicative verbs. Here is what God has done in Christ for you, for me. Bridged by a um, prayer at the end of chapter 3, starting in chapter 4, now into 5 and 6, it's the response. It's the imperatives. It's how to live in light of the gospel. That, that, that relationship is crucial to understand. These are not the things we do to become saved, to gain favor with God. Rather, these are the lives we live because we are saved, because he has placed his favor on us. That, that relationship is very important. And chapter 4 began with corporate instructions about how we're to walk, how we're to live our lives day to day. Went through five walks, and that last walk was to walk in wisdom, set in three contrasts. Not walking as unwise, but as wise, 515. Then in verse 17, therefore do not be foolish. 
but understand the will of the Lord, second contrast. Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And out of this third contrast comes the conduct accompanying that. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Verse 19, addressing one another in Psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so one of the marks, one of the primary marks of a spirit-filled individual is that they're embracing God's instructions, God's role, God's purpose for them in relationships in the body. And that leads into, then, three pairings of relationships. Wives to husbands, husbands to wives, children to parents, parents to children, slaves to masters, masters to slaves. And in every instance, Paul gives a theological, not a practical, not a pragmatic reason for why we are to do what we are told to do. So last week we looked at this at the wives command which is fundamentally summed up in submission. We looked at that. This week we're going to look at the first part of the husbands. Paul Paul spends three times as much text instructing the husbands as he does the wives. And this text is one unit because even though it begins with the wives at the very end in verse 33 he comes back to the wives again. So this is a unit. I'd like to begin our time by reading Ephesians 5:22 To 33, we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Lord God, um, this mystery is profound. Your desire and intent that our marriages would picture gospel truth, that, that our relationships would image and communicate divine reality about the gospel of Jesus Christ and his relationship to the church. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Your pattern, your purposes for our homes differ wildly from uh, the culture. So help us to receive your word that we would first and foremost be submissive to you as our God, as our King, as our Savior, as our Father. And then in submission to your word that we might embrace your purposes for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're going to be looking at this over two weeks. Um, Paul's instruction to husbands, uh, even though it's synthetic, it flows together. I think you can sort of see two two sections. First, primarily comparing Christ's relationship to the church to a husband's responsibility to his wife. 
And then in the second half, the focus, even though Christ is still there, it's hard, you can't separate them. It's We bring in this added notion of how you treat your own body. Love your wife as yourself. Love your wife as your body. And yet, even in there, Christ is loving the church as his body. So it's, it's not distinct, but I, I think there's enough distinction that we can look at this over two weeks. And there's a lot here. And for those of you who aren't husbands, and you're wondering, okay, what is this to me? We've covered this in previous weeks. First and foremost, remember, Paul gives this instruction to each group in the hearing of the others. We may in our day think, no, it would be far better to have a woman's seminar and a men's seminar and a youth ministry. We probably wouldn't be comfortable with the last two divisions, but we'd think that would be more efficient. But the problem with that is the men don't hear what's said at the women's seminar. The women don't hear what's said at the men's seminar. Paul intends, God intends for the wives to hear God's instruction to their husbands. God intends for the children to hear God's instruction to their parents. We're all to know that. It allows for a certain amount of corporate accountability. And it also means that even if you're not a husband, you're, you're potentially raising sons who will be. You're raising daughters who will marry husbands. And so as we look at God's purpose and role for husbands, there's, there's good truth here for everyone. Women, this is what you're looking for, the potential in a, in a suitor. Parents, this is what you're raising your sons to be. This is what you're raising your daughters to value. But more importantly, even than that, because marriage itself is a picture of the gospel, there is truth about Christ's salvation here. Even, if, even with all that aside, there is some glorious reality. We're going to learn about how Jesus Christ saved his bride, the church. If you're a Christian, then that's about you and that's about me. So let's dive in looking at this in two points. First point, sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Now the command to love dominates this passage. And i got to pause by discussing a little bit about love. Primarily in our culture, love, I think, is greatly misunderstood. We primarily view love as an issue of the affections and the emotions, Right? This, I think, comes more from sort of Greek thought and Cupid. And so we'll talk about falling in love. We'll talk about the heart wants what it wants. And what we're really describing is a passionate, consuming, um, almost enthralling emotional experience of desire and bliss and joy. That's not the heart of biblical love. And, and so we think of ourselves almost passive in regards to love. You just sort of get struck by the arrow, and, and all of a sudden you're, you're in love, and you can't help it. In fact, we use that type of reasoning to justify all types of sin and broken marriages. Biblically, love, especially the love of a husband, we're going to see, is, is something very different. It's an act of the will. It's a determination of the will. It's accompanied by emotions, and it will lead to action on behalf of its object for God's glory. But the comparison of how husbands are to love, in case you want to get this big picture of love, is like Jesus. And Jesus' love for us is not first and foremost his happy feelings for us. It's action. He does things on our behalf. Now, he cares about us intimately. I'm not trying to divorce or separate action from feelings. But in a culture that primarily thinks of romantic love as feelings, what the Bible might call being drunk with love in Proverbs 5, um, here, we're seeing the love of Christ seen in service, in giving, in sacrifice. And so think of love that way and in that sense as Christ defines love. 
So notice Paul's instruction. Husbands, love your wives. And then to clarify, well, in what way? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So husbands, you're to love your wives, but you're to love your wives in a particular way. There's a model that you and I are supposed to imitate. And it's a daunting one. It's Christ. So the way I want to look at this as we look at these two um, models of love is first look at Christ's example. (coughs) Here's where this is true of every one of us who is a believer. And then coming from Christ's example, what then is a husband's duty? So that's what we're going to look at this twice. First, his sacrificial love. Let's look at Christ's example. Now, what's helpful here when you ask the question, what does it mean to give yourself up? He's already used this term earlier in chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So if there's any doubt what's being talked about here, it's the crucifixion. Christ gave himself up is a nice way of saying he was nailed to a tree. And died for us. And so I want to just make three observations here. One, when did Christ do this? Did he do this before or after we loved him? Did Christ do this when we were beautiful and lovely? Or when we were sinful and corrupt? We know this. Turn back in chapter 2 to Ephesians. The answer is abundantly plain. Christ died for us while we are still sinners. In chapter 2, we read about our former state. Here's what Christ's bride looked like. Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So you were dead in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We were enthralled, slaves to darkness. Prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We were just objects, not of God's love, but his anger. We rightly deserved wrath. We were children of wrath. And in that state, dead, enslaved, corrupt, warring with God, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Notice how he emphasizes that. Made us alive together with Christ. No, God's action, Christ's action on our behalf is before we did anything. While we're at our most undeserving. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Gave himself up for when he gave us up for him when, here's your blank, we were enemies. Christ did this modeling work of sacrifice while we were estranged from him, while we were warring with him, while we were on the other team, right? I mean, amen, isn't that wonderful? That It's not that Christ dies once we do our bit, once we come forward. We were dead, enslaved, enthralled, guilty, under wrath. Christ gave himself up for us. Husbands, we'll get to that. Husbands, imitate that. Second, giving up himself for us is a process that begins at the incarnation. It culminates at the cross where Jesus becomes a sacrifice for us, where he bears our sin. But it begins with he gave up his rights and privileges. I mean, think about all of the sacrifice Christ did. It doesn't start at the cross. It culminates at the cross. 
You know this passage, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 10. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of man, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He didn't hold on to his rights. He had the right to be worshipped and praised by all the angels of God. He had the right to be honored. And instead he gave up those rights. He didn't hold on to them, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how Christ gave himself up. He first gave up his rights and privileges. I know, I know last week's message about submission was difficult. Understand this, not only does Christ submit to his Father's will and coming. We see that in the garden. Not my will, but yours be done. Luke 2 tells us he was submissive to his sinful, broken human parents. His child Jesus learns to obey Mary and Joseph. We're corrupt, broken, sinful people. Well, there's all types of giving up of rights that Christ models for us. There's all types of humility and servanthood in that. Thirdly, and most obviously, Christ gave up his life and atoned for our sin. Christ gave up his life and atoned for our sin. That simple phrase, gave himself up for us, as we saw in verse 2, refers to Christ being a sacrifice for God. So, so let's get this clear. This is what's amazing. The actual atonement itself is the model for Christian husbands. Christ did not deserve the guilt of our sin. He freely took it upon himself. When Jesus died on the cross, it was not because he had done anything wrong. Because you and I had. We deserved the penalty. We deserved the judgment. We deserved the condemnation. And our husband said, punish me and set me. It's the, it's the reversal of the garden. We're going to get this when we look at the second half of this. How the, the Genesis account sets up the gospel, right? But what happens in the garden The woman eats, she gives her a husband, and the husband blames the woman. The woman you gave to me did this. The second Adam says, my wife sinned, kill me. It's it's an amazing picture of love. The second Adam doesn't blame his bride. He takes upon himself her guilt. And you and I can only stand before God. You and I only have a hope because our husband... The the bridegroom of the church took upon himself the guilt and the sin of his bride and atoned on the cross as a sacrifice. That's that's amazing, but it sets the bar pretty high because Paul says, okay, husbands, do that. What does that mean? Let's look at the husband's duty. What does that mean? First, to take the initiative and lead redemptively. To take the initiative and lead redemptively. We've just been told you're the head. You have a measure of authority. You're the head. And I want to correlate this to my first point. Your marriages may not be where you want them to be. Your marriages may be pretty broken. And the temptation may be when my wife shows some readiness, some inclination, some desire to help build this thing, then I'll get involved. But I've tried before, and she's not interested, so I'm just I'm done. That is not how Christ loved the church. 
He loved the church and gave himself up for her. He suffered and died. He did his greatest act of self-sacrifice precisely when we were in hostile animosity towards him. So what does it mean for a husband to love his wife in that way? It means he's taking the initiative. He is the one acting, whether she acts or not. He is the one who is serving. He is the one who is dying and giving up of himself, regardless of how she responds. That's what it means to take the initiative and lead redemptively. Second, paralleling Christ, give up his rights and privileges. It means the husband's duty is to serve his wife's needs over his own comfort. We're tempted to think authority is good because you get the good life. The biblical picture of authority again and again and again is that authority exists, rightly used, and modeled by God in the first instance. Authority exists to serve, promote, and cultivate life. So God is the ultimate authority. And what does he do? He gives us life and he breathes life into us and he makes us alive and he shepherds us like children. He gives the man and the woman authority in the garden. To what end? They tend it, that it would grow, that it would be nourished and vital and flourish. He gives us authority over our children. Why? So that we could teach them and grow them up in the instruction of the Lord. Biblical authority, rightly understood, modeled properly, its purpose is not so that I can sit back on the couch while my wife serves me. It's so that I can serve her. I liken it to the authority. I just recently had a root canal. Thank you. And I sat under the authority of the dentist. The dentist said, open wide, I open wide. The dentist said, turn left, I turned left. The dentist said, um, get ready, a needle's coming, and I started crying. Um, well, why? why? Why did I sit myself under the authority of this person? So they could serve me. So they could promote the health and the integrity of my teeth, right? I don't begrudge that. Why are you telling me what to do? I'm thankful because they're using that authority to cultivate my mouth. The picture falls apart there. But you get the idea. And that is the ideal of authority. Now, we looked at this last week. It won't always be the ideal. And just because authority isn't being used ideally doesn't let us off the hook for our need to submit to it when God calls us to submit. But that is the ideal that's why this picture of marriage is a beautiful picture. It's, it's a wife submitting to, coming up under the authority of her husband willingly. No one forcing her to do it. And then the husband using that authority to serve his wife, not to serve himself. That's, that's, that's the idea here, to serve his wife's needs and comfort. Because follow it through here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We just heard in the previous verse, Christ is the head of the church. What does he do with that headship? He lays down his life. Which ultimately, it means to endure suffering and death for her good. To endure suffering and death for her good. Now, husbands, you cannot atone for your wife's sins. And in that degree, you cannot imitate Christ. So I'd take it maybe half a step back and say this. Christ sees his bride's greatest need. She is abiding under God's wrath for her sin. There's nothing she can do about it. And he is willing to lay down his life to provide for her what she most needs. Okay, husbands, that's what you're called to do. To value your wife's needs. Needs, not what necessarily she wants. These things can differ. Needs as God determines them. And then you're willing to suffer. You're willing to lay down your life 
You're willing to get uncomfortable. You're, you're willing to go without that she might have what she needs. And if necessary, to die. And even as God probably will not call many of us to physically die for our wives, there's another type of death, right? Jesus talks about picking up your cross daily and dying and following after. It's the dying to self. There's the dying to pleasure. There's the dying to my own desires. Remember Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Jesus said to all, If any woman come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Husbands, God is calling on you and I to be willing to lose our lives in that sense. Submitting to him as we lay down our lives and serve our wives. That's the example. That's the example that Christ gives us. That's the reason God has given us authority and headship. Okay? I'm going to read a quote by C.S. Lewis that draws this out. We all, we all want happy marriages. I want you to have happy marriages. I want you to have peaceful marriages. But in The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis makes a profound quote. I'll read a part of it. And he's, what he's observing is this. If we're to image the gospel, who does it more effectively? The husband in a happy marriage or the faithful husband with a difficult wife? Which, which, which one of those pairings better pictures Christ in the church? He writes this. It's best seen not in the husband we would all wish to be, but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion, whose wife receives most and gives least whose wife is most unworthy of him, is in her own nature least lovable. For the church has no beauty but that which the bridegroom gives her. He does not find but makes her lovely. Christ does not find us but makes us lovely. He goes on to say, um, It is to be seen not in the joys of any man's marriage but in its sorrows. In the sickness and sufferings of a good wife or the faults of a bad one, in his unwearying, never paraded care of his inexhaustible forgiveness, forgiveness, not acquiescence, as Christ sees in the flawed, proud, fanatical, or lukewarm church on earth that bride who will one day be without spot and wrinkle and labors to produce the latter, so the husband whose headship is Christ-like, and he is allowed no other sort, never despairs. That's profound. Men, if, if your marriage is difficult, there's a sense in which you can rejoice. You, you, more so than others, can image the faithfulness of Christ. The picture, when we go back to Hosea, you go back to the Old Testament, we will go back to Ezekiel here in a little bit, if the metaphors for marriage are always God, the faithful, long-suffering, redemptive, saving husband, and his people, the unfaithful, fickle, rebellious, stiff-necked, vain bride. And so we may be tempted to use our wife's sinfulness, our wife's stubbornness, our wife's whatever it is that we find displeasing as the excuse for why we're not doing it when the precise opposite logic ought to take over. You find your wife challenging, so does Jesus. 
You find your wife stiff-necked at times? So does Jesus. And so the text here says, Husbands, imitate Christ. Love your wives in this way. In what way? That when she was at her most vile, filthy, ugly, rebellious, dead, guilty, hostile, he died for her. Do that. Do that. Second, we see sanctifying love. Sanctifying love. We oftentimes can be tempted to think that Christ died for us just so, boom, we could go to heaven. That's sort of true, but there's a lot more purpose that the text gives to Christ's death than just that. I want you to follow the logic here. In verse 26 and 27, the word that appears three times. And it's translating a Greek term, which very clearly speaks to purpose. And so in 26, why did Christ give himself up for her? That he might sanctify her. Verse 27, that he might present the church to himself in splendor. And later in 27, that she might be holy and without blemish. In other words, the atoning death of Jesus is a means to an even greater end. I don't want to lessen the glory of Christ's sin-bearing on the cross, but in this passage, Paul says that was a step on the way to something greater. Christ gave himself up for her that he might do something further. Sanctify her, cleanse her, wash her, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. There's so much here, but I will just try to Make three points from Christ's example and then draw three parallel husbandly duties. This is, this is rich. And again, just remember, this is why Christ died. It says here, Christ's example, he gave himself up that we might be holy. He gave himself up that he might sanctify her. Jesus died so that you and I could be holy. Holy and sanctified, same concept. To sanctify or that which is holy is that which is set apart. That which is no longer part of the normal use, but it's set apart for something. And, And biblically, when we speak of us being sanctified, it's us being more and more set apart for God's use. When we speak that God is holy, 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 he is set apart, set apart, set apart. That's why you can't compare him to anything. Because he's not like everything else. He's holy, he's different, he's in another category. Then he makes us holy. Jesus died that he might sanctify his bride to make us holy. That's his great passion, our holiness. It's this notion of sanctifying is probably first introduced in Leviticus 8, where Moses anoints and sanctifies Aaron the priest. He's setting him apart for God's use. And we see the same purpose in salvation back in chapter 2 of Ephesians. Turn back to chapter 2. Everyone loves. Rightly so. Everyone loves. Verse 8 and verse 9. But we get to the purpose of verse 8 and 9 and verse 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. We receive the benefit of Christ's sacrificial, sin-bearing atonement on the cross by faith, through God's grace. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we say, Amen, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Why did God save us? Why did God create us anew? For good works. We're not saved from good works, not from out of them, not because of them. We're saved to them. And here the exact same thing is said. Why did Christ give up himself, lay down his life, suffer on the cross? That he might sanctify her. Now, there's a very real sense in which that happened at our salvation. At our salvation, God declares us just, innocent, not guilty, because of his blood, because of his sinless life. And so at salvation, we are sanctified in a sense. Absolutely. But what I think this text envisions here is beyond that to the progressive, ongoing, what we call progressive sanctification. Where God makes us become more and more what he has declared us to be. And that is certainly the rationale of the picture of a marriage here. I think you'll see that when we turn to Ezekiel. So, absolutely, Christ dying on the cross enables God to sanctify us legally, to declare us not guilty, innocent, holy. We receive that by grace through faith, not by works. But Christ is not finished with us yet. And so we read on. He gave himself up that we might be holy. And I think what's envisioned here is the progress, what we're doing even right now. Right now at this moment, I think Jesus is washing us, cleansing us. He'll be doing that as you drive home and when you get up tomorrow as a faithful husband. Read the text. That he might sanctify her. How? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. This is not the cleansing fundamentally that's judicial not what we call justification. This is sanctification. Now, turn in your Bibles. Keep your finger here. I'm only going to ask you to go to two other passages this morning. But Ezekiel 16 is one of them. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. We're going to look there, and we're going to look at Proverbs 31 briefly. Now, Ezekiel 16 ultimately is a tragic story. The good news is we're not going to look at the tragedy. We're going to look at the setup. It's a tragic story because God describes to... The Israelites who are in Babylon, who in part are confused. Why? What have we done? Why are we getting judged this way? Let me tell you. Let me tell you the story of your salvation. Let me tell you the story of how I found you. How God founded Israel. But this, this is a picture of how he saves each and every one of us. And this is partly where that marriage picture of salvation gets set up even further. The ultimate end of this tragic story is that after God does all this for his bride, she turns around and plays the whore. We, we won't look at that this morning, but I want you to see this, the beauty of how God saved you. Again, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Israel, to Jerusalem, sorry, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth and the day when you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salts, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day when you were born. And we know there's a common practice among many of these cultures when children are unwanted to leave them out to die from exposure. And so God says that that's your desperate state. As desperate of a state as a baby whose umbilical cord has not been cut, who's not even wiped down, left in a field, that's how helpless you and I were. And then we hear this great news, verse 6. 
And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed. Your hair had grown. You were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. And then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate flour and honey and oil and you became exceedingly beautiful and advance to royalty. God said, that's, that's a picture of how he saved Jerusalem, how he saved Israel. This is a picture of our salvation. And what does the husband do when he finds the, the one, his wife, the woman he will marry? He cleanses her. He washes her. Now, here is in preparation for the wedding day. So if we turn back to, to Ephesians 5, there is a sense in which we are wedded to Christ. The church can be called his bride. But there's another sense in which the wedding feast of the Lamb is yet future, right? And this is partly in the Jewish notion of engagement. If you read Matthew, you'll read that Matthew accounts that Joseph was betrothed to Mary, but in the same text it calls her his wife. And when he thought she had slept with a man before they came together, he was going to need to divorce her. So the Jewish view of betrothal still allows for calling them husband and wife. We're something like in that state. That's, that's the concept behind, if you turn back to Ephesians chapter 1, right? Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is in some respects like an engagement ring. It's the proof, the guarantee. The husband will return. The marriage will be consummated. That that what he has pledged to do, he will complete. And so you could liken us to an engaged bride to her husband. He will return. I mean, how many parables did Jesus speak using this very picture of a bridegroom returning? He's preparing a house. He's going to come back. We're sort of there. So we are in covenant with Christ. He is our husband, and yet our marriage is awaiting. And so the picture here is the work of a, a, a an engaged husband does to beautify his bride. I mean, it's not often done by the man these days, but how much time and effort and money goes into the beautification of the bride for her wedding day? 
How many photos are taken? How big of a deal is that? Our culture gets this. The beauty and the beautification of the bride for her wedding day is a paramount issue. I've never known a single bride to take that lightly, where the preparation doesn't take the whole day and days before. And there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that. The day of her wedding is the day for the celebration of her beauty. Absolutely. That's what Christ is doing. He died so he could beautify his bride. That's the picture from Ezekiel, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Here's the wedding day. That's, that's the rationale. Okay? So the, what is the tool then that he uses to cleanse his bride? It's the word. He cleanses us by his word. That's why I think this speaks more to the ongoing work of sanctification than it does to justification. He cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. In John 17, 17, Jesus prays to his father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. The, the, the tool, the soap, the brush, whatever picture you want to use by which God sanctifies his bride is his word. It is his word. Even back in Ephesians, go back to chapter 4, we saw this. In 4.20, that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And what was this truth about Christ? To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirits of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So Christ is paramountly concerned with our holiness. He died to sanctify us. And he does so now by his word. I love this next bit. His ultimate goal, though, his ultimate goal is that we would be glorious before him. He cleanses us to be glorious before him. So that he might, verse 27, present the church to himself without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He takes upon himself the work of cleansing his bride for his wedding day, because he loves his bride. He doesn't find her lovely, but he makes her lovely. He doesn't find her beautiful, but he beautifies her. And he is eager and diligent and faithful in the cleansing of his bride for the great wedding feast of the Lamb. That's his purpose and his work. And now, husbands, Paul says, do that. Do that. What does that mean? Three things. One, this means, husbands, your duty is to make her sanctification your main priority. To make her sanctification his main priority. I'm not saying you don't have responsibility to provide and to work. That's, I think, assumed. Here, what Paul is pointing to, the dynamic of marriage, is your concern is for your wife's growth in Christ, your wife's purity and holiness. That's your primary concern. You have a responsibility for her spiritual life that she doesn't have to you. I'll, I'll say this in marriage counseling sometimes to the husband. Your wife's sin is her sin, but it's also your sin in a way that your sin isn't hers. Because the one you're to tend, the one you're to shepherd, her failings, her immaturity speaks to your failing as a shepherd, as a washer. 
If, if I'm tasked to wash somebody, the stains that are still on them reflect on my failure at washing as well. Do they not? This is a radically different priority to be concerned about your wife's sanctification. This is why the qualifications for an elder also look to the, quali- the, the, the conduct of the wife. In 1 Timothy 3, a deacon's wife, and it speaks about what she must look like. Why? There's an assumption that his life and his stewardship of his house is going to have an effect on his wife's conduct. He won't turn there. To make her sanctification his main priority. And then he uses the same tools Christ uses. Christ uses his word. So now it means to labor in and with the word to cleanse her. To labor in and with the word to cleanse her. You got no better soap than Jesus does. Jesus' tool to cleanse his bride is his word. Which means don't be trading up the word for pop psychology. Don't trade up the word for negotiation. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. Pragmatics. Dr. Phil. Christ cleanses his bride with the water of the word. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Use the same soap and brush and tools. You can't improve upon that. And that does mean, of course, you're going to have to study the word. So under that two points, to labor in and with the word to cleanse her. Now, if you turn to Proverbs 31. There's two, two pieces to this, I think, are involved in sanctifying your bride. And the first is to prayerfully consider her spiritual needs. This may even be a new thought for some of you. If I'm going to clean one of my kids, I'll switch the analogy, because I find myself doing this regularly with my children. Um, oh, I do. You've got to look them over and see where the dirt is, see where the burrs are, see where the jam is, right? You first have to evaluate. I can't clean somebody who I don't know where the dirt is. And so husbands, I... Are you considering your wife's growth? Are you aware of where she's weak, where she's strong, where she needs help, where she excels? Is that on your radar? I'm going to read to you in a moment. Let's read um, Proverbs 31. But here we see exemplified the, the picturesque, idealized, godly wife. And she is awesome in so many areas. Let's just read this. This is the words of King Lemuel's mother. An oracle that his mother taught him. And first she gives him counsel about how to be a good king. But then in verse 10, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. He'll have no lack of gain. He, she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. She's involved in business and investments. Submitting and coming under the leash of your husband doesn't negate these things. She 
considers a field and buys it, verse 16. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She's industrious. She's hardworking. She's diligent. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor. She's generous and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Notice how many areas of excellence are in this woman. She's she's buying fields. She's investing. She's sowing vineyards. She's Clothing her family. She's giving to the poor. She's a wise, good teacher. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. That is the target, not necessarily in every example. Like if I didn't buy a field, I, I bought something, that's fine. But the, the virtues, character qualities shown here, this is the idealized woman. The husbands, this is who you should be working to sanctify your wife into more and more becoming. I'm going to shock you for a moment here with something. I think people come at Proverbs 31 all the wrong way. you got these young men. i got to find me a Proverbs 31 woman. Newsflash. You sin if you marry the Proverbs 31 woman. It's wicked to marry the... She's married already. You can't marry the Proverbs 31 woman. She's got kids and a husband. But you can shepherd your wife into becoming this. So, by all means, young men, find women you you could see becoming this. But you can't marry the Proverbs 31 woman. You disciple and shepherd and train and cultivate the Proverbs 31 woman. And so you're considering this. And you're giving consideration to what areas you think you could help your wife grow. What areas you could develop. What weaknesses you could strengthen. What areas in which she excels This is a very different concern than much of our consumer culture that's concerned with image. If you're more interested in getting your wife to the gym than a Bible, you may need to hear the words, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Which brings us... um, the next point, too. So first, prayerfully consider spiritual needs. Second, study, model, and minister the word. So you're looking at a biblical model of femininity, a biblical model of a godly wife and woman. You're trying to think how you could help encourage your wife to grow into that. And then you're turning to God's word to study, model, and minister the word. i, I got to move quickly because of time. But I love, I love Ezra 7.10. When Ezra... Returning from Babylon, he, 710, Ezra set his heart 
Three things. To study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Husbands, it's not just enough to teach the word. You've got to model it. You've got to do it. This is the hard work. And if you need help, that's what the church leaders and books and sermons and YouTube. and There's so many resources to help you. If you feel unequipped, I don't know how to do this. Ask for help. Remember back earlier in Ephesians, the leadership of the church is to equip the saints to the works of the ministry. So if you need equipping, you need help, talk to me. Talk to Pastor Daniel. Talk to one of the elders. That's precisely what we're here to do. If you feel unqualified, not up to that task, praise God will help. All of us are unqualified to fully love our husbands as Christ loved the church. All of us are going to need help with that. I mean, if you're sitting there, I got that. I can love my wife like Christ loved the church. Watch out. That is not the right response. Point three and final point then. Remember, Christ's goal is a glorious Beautiful bride presented to himself on his wedding day. Delight, to delight himself in and earnestly desire her holiness. To delight himself in and earnestly desire her holiness. This, I think, can be really challenging for women in our culture. They know, they know what the Bible says. They know that 1 Peter 3, 3 to 5 says, Don't let your adorning be the, with braided hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is God's sight is very precious. And yet I fear that oftentimes men in the church communicate, Yeah, but being good looking doesn't hurt either. And, and so the Bible tells them, Focus on the beauty of your character. And the culture says, focus on the beauty of your body. And husbands, your, your wives need to understand from you, you are most concerned and most attracted to their godly character. First and foremost. Yes, there are other passages in the Scripture that speak about but being drunk with love towards her and celebrate the, the beauty of the body that God has made. But Christ's primary concern is for his wife's holiness. Husbands, did your wife really believe you'd be more pleased with their growth in holiness or some other achievement. If you're going to love your wives as Christ loved the church, you are going to have as your great goal the sanctification of your wife, that she might be before you without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that that is your great delight and desire. We can be sending them mixed messages we follow after the world's value system. Beauty is vain. Charm is deceitful. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And husbands, this is only the first half of Paul's instructions for you. But I think it's a good place to stop. And I'd encourage us while I call the worship team up for our final closing song. We can only do this because we first see and experience Christ Loving his bride in this way. We can only imitate what we first see. And Christ gave himself up for us while we were filthy, wretched enemies. Christ labors over his bride with his word, sanctifying us, patiently enduring with us in our rebellion and our stiff-neckedness. As we come again and again and again and again and say, I'm sorry. 
And then, for those who have experienced that reality, you husbands, try to do something like that. Please stand.